What is judgment? That God holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than a stubborn rebel ever did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Those were some of the words of the preacher who was responsible for the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. The Great Awakening. I get it, bruh. Those words will wake you up. Is that the way God feels? Judgment is the end of this story, my friends. Daniel 12, 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But judgment isn't really the end of the story. What is it? It's the beginning of the story. <laughs> it's the beginning of the eternal story, right? And by much of traditional Christian thought through the years, the beginning of either the rest of your blessed and blissful life as a believer in Jesus or the beginning of the wretched eternity of conscious torment you will spend with Satan in hell. And as Jonathan Edwards and many others would suggest, it is apparently God's desire to perform that. It is his obligation out of justice is the basis for the idea. To see you cast off into worse than utter darkness, you are abominable in his eyes, it says, unless you turn to Jesus, however, however that might be defined in any particular tradition. The Apocalypse of Peter, anyone ever heard of it or read it? The Apocalypse of Peter was considered to be basically, it's, it's contemporary with the Apocalypse of John. You know, another name for the Apocalypse of John, right? Revelation. The Apocalypse of Peter was around the same time and was counted by some of the early church fathers as part of the Bible and was included and read there. Although it says in the notes, of this particular church father. Not all churches are comfortable reading it. Here's some excerpts from the Apocalypse of Peter. Keep in mind, contemporary with John, considered to be part of the Bible by the second century. It didn't make it. It didn't make the grade. So he spends a lot of time, uh, some, some time, a little bit of time describing heaven, 
and his perception of heaven. And then we move to this. This has this to say about those unfortunate and abominable souls which God's hand does not hold, and they fall into the abyss of fiery torment. And I also saw another place over against that one, very squalid. It was a place of punishment. And they that were punished, and the angels that punished them had their raiment, dark, according to the air of the place. And some there were hanging by their tongues. And these were they that blasphemed the way of righteousness, and under them was laid fire, flaming and tormenting them. And there were also others, women, hanged by their hair above that mire which boiled up. And these were they that had adorned themselves for adultery. And I saw the murderers and them that were, there, there, them that were consenting to them cast into a straight place full of evil, creeping things, and smitten by those beasts. And so turning themselves about in that torment. And upon them were set worms like clouds of darkness. And the souls of them that were murdered stood and looked upon the torment of those murderers and said, O oh God, righteous is thy judgment. And hard by that place I saw another straight place where the discharge and the stench of them that were in torment ran down. And there was, as it were, a lake there. And there sat women up to their necks in that liquor. And over against them many children, which were born out of due time, that sat crying, and from them went forth rays of fire, and smote the women in the eyes. And these were they that conceived out of wedlock, and caused abortion. I've been surprised by some of the responses I've gotten to this series. A lot of them have been like, I, I, I'm surprised you're taking this on. Wow, how much negative feedback have you gotten? You know, I, I applaud your boldness. And, and, and that was before it even got controversial, which we're about to do. And I, 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 I pondered those statements and realized the reason they're saying those things, and, and thank you for all of the nice things that you said, and even the bad things you said, they help me be better too. But these are things we really don't talk about. And why not? The reason is simple. These are pillars, better phrased, foundations. We do not shake them because if we challenge orthodoxy, we challenge belief. And we may have to consider or even change, at least reevaluate some of the things that we've believed for so long. And for some people, that is terrifying. And religious authorities from almost as long as there have been religious authorities know that. And the statement is, this is the truth, accept it, shut up, don't ask questions. But I think we should. And so I'm going to. And I'll do it in front of you, with you. How's that? So that we can ask them together. And we may disagree. And, but I learned a great line, Linda, from the Episcopal Church recently. I'm going to apply it. Disagree, but do it agreeably. Sounds very Jewish. I like it. But friends, after thousands of pages of reading, and I am not exaggerating when I say thousands of pages, upwards probably now of approaching 3,500 or 4,000 pages of reading that I've done, and you might say, so what? You're a rabbi. That's what you're supposed to do. For a sermon that goes in one ear and out the other? I hope it doesn't, but I mean, for a doctoral thesis, maybe I'll read 4,000 pages. But I read it, and beyond that, it's, it's listening, it's, 
It's, it's uh, watching and, and learning and doing and a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer that I not lead anyone astray or cause doubt and to strengthen ultimately the calling of our community as disciples. That's what it's really supposed to be about, what, what I do, what we do together. And the conclusion I've arrived at is we need to talk about this. It's okay. And I'll present to you some options because guess what? I'm not dead, so I don't have the conclusions to tell you yet. We will all know one day. I've read works from every camp, every camp, every idea, including the, the biblical scholars, theologians, the, all of them, even the seculars and the atheists and everybody I've read to try to put something together. And, and what about Jewish perspective? What do we do with Judaism? What does Judaism have to say about all this stuff? Because after all, this is a Messianic Jewish synagogue. Well, they have a little to say about all of it. And it's very kind of all confused. So unfortunately, that doesn't help us a whole lot either. And we're talking about apostolic scriptures. Traditional Judaism does not have a great amount of commentary on anything that the apostles or Yeshua said. So we're sort of left in a hole there when it comes to Jewish. We've spent a lot of time looking at how we got to some things through Judaism. But I have never struggled, actually, you could ask Kelly, I have never struggled so immensely and intently to present information to this congregation. And you know why? Because it is exactly not that. This is not information. We are talking here about someone's life in the sense that people have lost relatives and they may not have done the right things in this life or something. We're talking about someone's eternal destiny. We're talking about stuff that isn't to be trifled with. It's judgment, eternal judgment. Elementary principle six. Five is the resurrection of the dead. Hebrews one, the number six, eternal principle, elementary principle, this, eternal judgment. This is Bedrock tradition for people. We're talking about heaven and hell. And I bet you everyone in here has an opinion about it. Because you have to. Jesus came and died so you wouldn't burn forever in hell. That fear of hell for many people was a driving force to salvation. If we, if we, if we dare to potentially water down something like that, or, or change it, or reevaluate it, or consider other options. We, we, people won't feel the urgency, the fear of hell. And that's a concern expressed by many who I suppose Jonathan Edwards' words that I quoted earlier would resonate deeply in your soul. You should feel lower than garbage because that's what God really thinks about you. I have my doubts about that. But really, you know, it's uncommon to hear anyone who asks questions about these things because, you know, an academic or a professor, you can pretty much say whatever you want in a college campus this day. But standing up here, you don't get that luxury. You say something that's not right, you get canceled, people leave, and you're a heretic. It's okay. I think we'll come out of this unscathed. But we're going to talk about it. Okay, sorry. Let me, be, let me be very clear about something. 
Well, actually, let me, let me read you something. First of all, I'm not a liberal in terms of theology. I'm a legalist. How do you know that? I preach Torah. I mean, isn't that what we're always called? You're legalistic. I'm not. Torah's not legalism. From gotquestions.org, one of the most prominent Google search answer sites. Hell has become a controversial subject in recent years, even among Christians. However, the controversy is entirely man-made. The rejection of the reality of hell stems from a human inability to reconcile the love of God with eternal punishment or from an outright rejection of God's words. From R.C. Sproul's website, Legionnaire or Legionnaire, I'm not sure, for sinners to be consigned to anything less than the horrors of eternal punishment would be a miscarriage of justice. For sinners to be consigned to anything less than the horrors of eternal punishment would be a miscarriage of justice. Let me be clear. I am in full agreement that hell, and by that I mean Gehenna, and you know what that means now, is real. But I do wonder, I do, I must ask myself, if questioning or, or, or digging into a little bit the horrors of eternal punishment and coming to a different conclusion would be a miscarriage of justice. I have to ask myself that. But honestly, beyond all the listening and the reading and the writing and all this stuff, I've talked to a lot of people. And the truth of the matter is, hell isn't something that people struggle with. Hell is real. It's what we've been taught about hell that is a difficult thing to struggle through. To which the traditionalists would respond, it doesn't matter what you want to believe. The Bible says it, it's in there, believe it, and shut up. And therein lies the difficulty. And I haven't said one thing yet about hell, but this is important groundwork for the next couple of weeks that are going to conclude this part. But therein lies the difficulty. The Bible says it. Well, listen, there is a truth in the Bible. There is truth in the Bible. Who agrees with that? Yeah, there is. And the problem is, we don't know it exactly. Which is evidenced by the thousands of denominations and competing theologies that, that spill over the edge of this huge bucket of religious ideas that we've filled up over the years. But Paul says it. 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. That is the scripture for what we're talking about right here. Amen, Shaul. Way to go, brother. And historically... The Bible has, has uh, you know, there's a lot of history with the Bible. But what history has shown is that when someone wants to find something in the Bible, you can almost always do it. And you can almost always make it say what you want it to say. Again, look at thousands of denominations if you don't believe me. And in historically, in relation to our subject matter, that has happened with the Bible. Religious, sociological, historical, political motives have all been involved in what we could call the formation of hell. 
And that's our subject matter. But here's a real difficult pill to swallow, and I think we should probably be willing to take our medicine. For many people hearing me speak right now, wherever you are, if you're in this room online, your or online, your perception of hell, of therefore eternal judgment, and ultimately from there, the nature of God and how he ultimately deals with humanity has been informed by Christian tradition. And that comes, and this is a first real eye-opener, that tradition comes way later, maybe not way, but later than the words of Paul and the words of Yeshua. Those things that inform that tradition come from writers like Tertullian and ultimately from Augustine, who was the cement, the concrete of what most of the church believes about hell. And then Luther on a small level, he had his own way of looking at it, but the Protestant Reformation and then John Calvin, the Reformed theology, and all of those voices are the ones that have informed the majority of what you think you know about hell. And so here's the difficult question. If much, not all, and certainly in no way am I suggesting that Christianity or church is bad, but if much of Christianity developed apart from the roots of faith and tradition, even the teachings of Yeshua and Paul and the disciples regarding basic things like Shabbat, like the relevance of God's instruction in the Torah for your life, like the festivals of God, like the kingdom message, like what is really the gospel, like not replacing the Jewish people, the relevance of Israel. I mean, the list, I could lay out a whole scroll of things that Christian tradition developed apart from Jewish tradition. And we don't do those things. We don't believe those things. We're, we have a Torah scroll. We're, we're in here on Shabbat. We're about to celebrate the festivals. We don't do those things. Why then would it be reasonable for us to accept Christian tradition as the foundation of our understanding of the afterlife, particularly when it developed centuries after what the Bible says and was written? Does that make sense? It does not make sense to me. What it says is, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying it's at least worth a reevaluation. You agree with me up to that point? And as I said, we're not really able to look too much at Jewish thought either, and that makes it more difficult. We've looked at places, we've looked at things in Jewish tradition about a, a, a place for the desperately wicked, the desperately wicked, who even after everything has passed away, Sheol and death and all this stuff, somehow in some strange only God kind of way, there's this small audience of people who remain alive and get tortured. Judaism absolutely has room for the idea of hell and, in minority opinions, some type of eternal punishment. 
but it's not the mainstream. And actually, the mainstream opinion was settled sometime later uh, by Rabbi Akiva, which in essence says when the dead go and they die, they're in Gehenna, or they're in, they're in the purification fires, and then they're released. No one stays there longer than 12 months, Rabbi Akiva said. Some get, you know, thrown into the lake of fire after that. Some people get to enter paradise. We won't rehash all that. I've already talked about some of those things. But in order to trace the Christian viewpoint on final judgment, it is now important that we revisit our old friend, which I mentioned to you, Plato, not the modeling clay. We talked about Plato and the immortal soul and that development and how that sort of, we saw hints of that working its way into second, pre-Yeshua, second and third century Jewish thought. And we suggested that it is possible that Plato's idea of this soul ongoing influenced Jewish thought on some level. And we called this idea progressive revelation. But progressive revelation does not always lead to proper ends. Now, Plato thought that the body was despicable and foul and you got rid of it when you died and your soul whisked off to somewhere. Well, Yeshua came and said, no, sir, Plato, that's not the way it works. And he resurrected and he showed him the holes in his hands and he ate and he had a real body and all that kind of stuff. So we already saw that Plato was off a little bit. And Yeshua brought the proper understanding of the resurrection and the reunification of the body and soul. And he talked about the kingdom and he said, I'm going to help, I'm going to resurrect you and we're all going to have this amazing thing. So we saw the Jewish thing go that way. But there was a problem because, and this is a little bit semantical if that's a word, but so necessary an immortal soul, which is the way that Plato describes it. And we've talked about this. An immortal soul means a soul that can never die. You with me? Immortal. Cannot die. And that created for the church fathers a very difficult scenario. And keep in mind that these gentlemen, many of the ones that we look at as the founders of the church, even pre-Catholic church, pre-Constantine, were heavily influenced by their pre-Christian upbringing, which was pagan, which was Greek, which was Platonic. It's not to say that they brought no good information to the mix, but they brought a unique blend of Platonic and later Neoplatonic thought into religion. And I want to sort of move through this quickly because it's a little bit boring, but it's really, 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 really important. You see, here's the difficulty. If the souls of human beings are truly immortal, unable to die, they are indestructible as well. They are destined to live forever. And if they really were sinful, or as it would become later, if they did not say the proper prayer of confession, then this immortal soul would live on forever and must be punished for the decision that it made. 
It must be punished in, in what the Bible refers to as eternal fire, unquenchable fire. And it had to be the body and soul together because Jesus clearly had demonstrated that that was going to be the case. It couldn't just be the soul because the body and soul committed these sins together. So what we find now is developing the idea that if you don't do the right thing, confess the right thing, believe the right thing, then your body and soul will be sent down into this place and they will live forever there. And the only thing that God can do out of His justice is punish you forever. And starting primarily with Tertullian from Carthage, a Roman province in Africa who lived from 150 to 220 AD. That means that the wicked, not Jesus followers, will endure conscious, unending torment. And the Bible uses words like eternal, unquenchable fire, punishment. But a careful reading of these gospel reader, writers of the New Testament, the apostolic scriptures, it shows a lot of other words that are really, 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 really important to note. Particularly Yeshua's words. Okay, here are a, a couple. Destruction, annihilated, burned up, consumed. But later theological development, which had Jewish influence and especially Platonic and pagan ideas, creatively blended some new understandings, which became even today very influential. That is to say this. The idea became that when the Bible says destruction, it doesn't mean that. When Yeshua says, fear the one who can destroy body and soul in Gehenna, it doesn't mean that. Ideas emerged of a secret fire, some type of supernatural divine secret fire that God had made for this ongoing eternal conscious torment where the bodies and souls could be thrown into this secret fire, but it wouldn't burn them up. They would regenerate in this secret fire so that over and over and over they could be consumed and tortured. Those types of ideas are not found in the Bible, but they are found in Greek sources. So you have this supernatural body. This is, this, is the, this is another unique consideration. God resurrects the wicked souls for the last judgment, right? And puts them back in their body, in a resurrected body. And then sends them back down to hell into the lake of fire to be consumed in this new, like, sort of spiritual body that can never die. And it's just burned and burned and consumed and then restarted. And the process goes on and on and on. Ideas like that. And I'm just giving you that one example because you need to understand that connection between what the Bible says and doesn't say and what mythology and Greek sources say. Here's the strangest contradiction. You ready? If that is the case, if God resurrects the wicked dead 
gives them a body that cannot be consumed. It's not death. It's eternal life. But yet the Bible refers over and over to death. Death. Yeshua will save you from death. The lake of fire is the second death. But yet in these types of weird things, the, the wicked have a form of weird, upside-down, eternal life because they live forever. Are you confused? These are writings, these ideas are things that are coming 120, 200 years after, after Messiah. Paul's writings are the closest and oldest writings we have. From around 50, Paul started writing his letters. After that came the Gospels. And then ultimately we end, and there are various theories, of course, no one agrees on anything, that Revelation was the last and latest book. Almost, almost into the second century, John was writing Revelation from the Isle of Patmos. Okay, so Paul, the Gospels, and then Revelation. Now remember, Revelation and the Apocalypse of Peter are about the same time, which means that the ideas presented that I showed you about, you know, in Apocalypse of Peter, it, Revelation is also an apocalypse that uses some of these same types of languages and themes. I don't know about you, but I never read anything in Paul or Yeshua's words about babies who had been aborted shooting rays of fire into the eyes of women who killed them. That's what the Apocalypse of Peter says. But, but, but that writing was much closer to the church fathers. And here's, here's the important consideration. The flow and development of, of ideas over time, it really does matter. It matters when the things we read were written. And maybe, maybe it would behoove us, rather than looking at the way later sources that come in the second, third, fourth century, we might probably should focus more of our attention on Paul and Yeshua as the earliest and closest sources. And Paul may not have walked with Yeshua, but he was tight with John and Peter and all of those dudes. So he knew what was going on and what had been taught. And he was, you know, he didn't walk, that's fine. But, but some of the most compelling verses that we have that are used to, to confirm that Jesus believed in the idea that our souls would be consciously tormented in hell forever are from Revelation. The latest books, two really scriptures that I'll talk about next week. But, but all of the rest of the things he said sort of don't get any merit about destruction and annihilation and chaff being thrown in the fire and totally consumed and all this kind of stuff that's all over it. Paul's language regarding eternal conscious torment is absolutely absent. You cannot find it anywhere in Paul's writings. You can find some things about the wrath of God. That's for sure. That's in there. I am not suggesting 
I want to I, I just read you something from, and this is going to be one of the books I recommend to you because there is so much that I'm not going to tell you because I can't. But I'm going to give you sources from all three camps to read if you want to. And it'll only be about, I don't know, 3,200 pages. And you'll really enjoy it. There's, there's something that you have to know about Revelation. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to talk just a little bit longer, if you'll be patient with me. There's so much to say that it's difficult to even fit it in. Revelation is a powerful book. Revelation is an apocalyptic book. That means that it uses certain language to communicate ideas. The tradition of apocalyptic literature upon which Revelation draws, moreover, is one of such phrygenous allegory, that means a confused mixture, apocalyptic literature, and one that consists so thoroughly in the elaborate veiling of political and religious provocations behind fabulous dream images and esoteric symbolisms and cryptic ciphers that we delude ourselves if we imagine that across a distance of 2,000 years, and without any knowledge of the secretive community from which the text arose, and without any inkling of the cryptadia concealed beneath its countless figural layers, we could hope to grasp even a shadow of a fragment of its intended message, moreover, to conduct an entire theology based on the reading of Revelation would be unwise." How many crazy teachers have you heard talking about Revelation and all the things that they found and all the what God showed them about this symbol and this symbol? And I mean, Revelation is a is a trippy book. So my point there is we just I'm not suggesting that Revelation is not an inspired book. It's written by John. The apostle that Yeshua loved, and absolutely the Holy Spirit inspired him. And Revelation speaks about a judgment for the world. It talks about books being opened, an afterlife, the world to come, all from a Jewish perspective. So I'm not dismissing it in any way, but I am suggesting to determine Yeshua's opinion on the fate of those not found in the book of life from a few scriptures in Revelation would be unwise. That's a premise that I want to lay down. Okay, so what? I'm getting hungry, Rabbi. It matters. We are considering what the New Testament says about eternal judgment. If we want to be as authentic as possible to be close to the source, we would likely look at Paul, the Gospels, and Revelation. And what we find there in relation to later developments in Christian theology is radically different than the theology you have probably grown up believing. Have I made that point clear? Good. Paul has very, very little to say. If he really believed that the alternative to life in Christ is eternal torment, it seems fairly careless of him to have admitted, omitted any mention of the fact. In every instance in which he names the stakes of our relation to Christ, he describes salvation as rescue from death, not from perpetual torture. I know it's traditional to take death here as meaning spiritual death, which really means not death in any obligingly literal and terminal sense, but instead endless agony and separation from God. But Paul would have been something of a cretin 
not to have made that absolutely clear if that was indeed what he intended his readers to understand. I quote that only to say, you can't look at the earliest sources in the New Testament to derive any of the theology that most of the world has grown up believing. Okay? Paul says and talks about separation from the kingdom, that the kingdom is arriving soon. Prepare yourself through repentance and good works. Stop sinning. Paul says it. And yes, he says the alternative is you will be destroyed. Destruction is your end. And if this were a college class, we'd spend the next two hours pulling up scripture upon scripture to study the Greek and all these things, but we're not going to do that. Yeshua, again, while we can certainly find words and verses describing eternal and unquenchable fires, judgment, eternal punishment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, darkness, everything that we've learned about in rabbinic literature, you can't find anything like the later development that I read you from Jonathan Edwards or the Apocalypse of Peter. It's not on his mouth. It's not in his mouth. It's not in his mind. It's not in his teaching. It's not what he communicated. We even find in Matthew 25, the scripture attributed to eternal conscious torment on Yeshua's lips, we find the words eternal punishment in there. Wow, that sounds like eternal conscious torment. But we should probably look and understand what the word eternal actually means in Greek. And what is punishment? We need to look. There is a judgment. There is a judgment coming. And Jonathan Edwards wanted to scare the you-know-what out of you about that judgment. We closed with this scripture last week, and I said it gets a little sticky through here. Is it sticky yet? Um, I don't know, but... I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled. And it goes on to talk about the books were opened, the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them according to their deeds who were in them. And they were judged, each one. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What comes next? There are three schools, and I will take you through them next week and allow you to draw your own conclusions. They are roughly three. The traditionalist or the infernalist, or the eternalist. Traditionalist, infernalist, eternalist. I said there were three. Those are one. It, the math didn't work, but they, there's a lot of names. Let's go with infernalists. And I would suggest this is the majority position. What might you think they believe? That you will burn forever in hell. This is the camp of fire and brimstone, burn and eternal unquenchable fire, conscious torment as an enemy of God. And there are levels of that. There are levels of that understanding based on their definition of the words of the Bible and especially the words of Yeshua. Next are the conditionalists or the annihilationists. What might you think they believe? 
that when you are thrown into the lake of fire, you are annihilated. You are gone. You are dead. They, they attach a traditional meaning to dead. And how do they arrive at this conclusion? By their interpretation of the words of the Bible and the words of Yeshua. And last are the universalists. What might you think they believe? Everyone shall be saved because God does not desire that any should perish. And where do you think they arrive at their opinions? From the words of the Bible and from the words of Yeshua. Come back next week. We'll be a little further down the road. Shabbat Shalom.